You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. Amen. Thank you for uh, the privilege and uh, your generosity and giving of taking our kids to camp this past week. Actually, we've kind of officially uh, been kind of re, re, uh, re-theming summer camp to our summer retreat. I figure that's a little more grown up for some of our teens who the name camp sounds a little campy. So we're, we're going with the, re- the retreat name from now on, hopefully. But it was a wonderful time, and if you were here before the service, you saw some of our pictures uh, from the week. Our theme this week, this past week in Daytona Beach was, this changes everything. And you'll be happy to know that all the students who went, if they did what they were supposed to do, read an entire book over the course of the week. A really short book, really easy to read book, but one, a couple chapters a day by a teenager about how the gospel transforms the teenage years. And so they went through a series of themes. Um, Jared, Anthony, and Chris Loomis helped me lead some of the Bible studies in the morning and afternoon, and then we gathered in the evening for our Bible studies. And so I want you to be in prayer that even though summer camp is over, God is still at work in the hearts of those students' lives through the word and as they continue to read and think about what we talked about. I'm in a bit of an intermission here before Friday, in which, uh, at which time me and some of those same students, plus a lot of other students, will take off for our World Changers trip to Chattanooga. So in the midst of all this stuff going on this summer, Century Kid and Summer Camp and World Changers and VBS and all the stuff that God is doing, uh, stay in prayer that God would work through those things, that really the event is not the event itself, but what God does leading up to, through, and even after the event and uh, following up in the kids' lives with what they hear and what they do. So thank you for your generosity in making all that possible for them. And I trust that in eternity future, 10,000 years from now, you'll be reaping the reward of those dollars and that time that we gave to allow them to go. Um, Open your Bibles to John chapter 17 today. Pastor John is out with his family and uh, always affords me the opportunity to preach whatever I like. But in just keeping with the theme and trying to stay on board with John, decided just to stick with John today. So in John 17, we'll just be looking at the first uh, five verses this morning. Before we begin, let's pause for prayer. Thank you, God, for your word. As we have just heard through song, we stand on scripture alone. And so today, as we bow ourselves before your word, I ask that you would take my opinions and take my thoughts and take my words and that you would crucify them so that what is heard and proclaimed today is the word of God and that by the spirit you would take what is proclaimed and that we would receive it with joy and with thankfulness and that we might use what we hear today 
to look more and more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so you're in John 17, so place a marker there or a finger and open towards the beginning of your Bible to the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter. In Exodus chapter 30, which you do not have to turn there, just Leviticus. In Exodus chapter 30, God is giving Moses and the people the instructions for the tabernacle and its construction and the pieces of furniture that will go inside and how to construct them and the exact measurements for them and the color and the type of wood and what kind of metal is to cover them. And in Exodus chapter 30, one of the pieces that God instructs Moses and the people to build is an altar for incense that in the inner court of the tabernacle there in the wilderness there would be an altar or a table type piece of furniture on which incense for which God gives the exact recipe that cannot be deviated from is placed and burned over hot coals and if you've ever seen incense used in maybe some different church settings or in some stores where people of, of, of different cultures may burn incense, you see that smoke that's almost like a fog that lifts and it, it kind of hovers and lingers. And there was an intense amount of significance and symbolism in what God instructed Moses to do in that this cloud of incense and this fragrant pillar of, uh, of incense was to represent the prayers of the people continually going before the Lord. And the intercession of the priests continually being lifted up before the Lord. And so the prayers as they went up were as if that fragrant sweet incense was going up to the Lord. And the cloud that hovered was as if the prayers of the people and the prayers of the priests and the intercession of the priest was hovering there over the tabernacle to make the way for the people to meet with God. And in that beautiful picture... Insert Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah enters into the temple to offer the offering of incense, which it was his turn to do, we know that's when he received the announcement about the birth of John the Baptist. Listen to what one commentator said about what Zechariah was doing. The priests were divided into 24 groups or divisions, according to 1 Chronicles 10 of which Zechariah's division of Abijah, his tribe, is the eighth in the rotation. Priests and their families would live in Jerusalem or in various nearby villages, but when their division was called up for duty for a week in the temple twice a year, the priests would come to Jerusalem to work in the temple. Each day, about 50 priests, each day, each day, about 50 priests would have been on duty with perhaps 300 on duty during a given week. This was considered a great honor. And since there were a large number of priests, no priest was allowed to serve as the officiating priest as Zechariah did on that day, offering the offering of incense, but once in their entire lifetime. Sometimes the high priest himself, of which there was only one of the 50, himself officiated. 
And so within the setting of the temple and the tabernacle, as you approach the most holy place from the holy place, as you approach the holy of holies where the mercy seat was, the ark of the covenant was, God's manifest presence with his people, his glory was there in the inner chamber of the temple. There was this table at which this offering of incense continually rose before the Lord as the sign of the prayers of the people, at which priests daily attended. The priests were daily there raking the coals and reigniting the coals and fanning the flame and reissuing the cloud as it continued to go never was it to cease never was it to stop and never did their job cease 50 a day working the temple one a day doing this particular task in the temple and then one day a year as we read about in Leviticus chapter 16 there was a day of atonement which was the only day in the entire liturgical year for the Jews that anyone went inside the veil to the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only one time a year and only one person, the high priest for that year. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we read about that, but just look at chapter 16, verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering first for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And then he shall take a censer, sort of a bowl hung on chains. And he would put coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. We've crossed from the holy place into the most holy place, from the holy place into the holy of holies. And he put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat. You see this thick cloud of incense rising from this bowl as Aaron performed his duties inside the Holy of Holies, a relatively small space, and it would have been foggy and musty with the odor of the incense. And then he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side, And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now as we come to our text for this morning in John chapter 17, we step away from the picture and we step away from the symbol and the sign and the type and we now step into the reality in that what Jesus is about to do through his life and his suffering and his dying and his rising is not a picture of those things that came before. But those things prove themselves to be a picture of what Jesus is now doing. In other words, what Jesus is now doing does not simply point back to that, but what was happening back then points to Jesus. The reality, the fulfillment of everything that we just read from the incense to the altars to the priesthood to the blood to the sacrifices to the atonement to the tabernacle itself to the very glory of God itself is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
at his baptism. He's ceremonially washed in water, just as the priest would do before he entered into the tabernacle or the temple. In John chapter 2, we've seen this progression. Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it and purifies it from all its uncleanness to prepare it for the work that he's about to do. In John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed by Mary in Bethany, preparing him not only for his death and his burial, but for his service as the high priest. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. More pictures of purification and cleansing and washing. All of this tying the gospel that we're reading in John to these Old Testament types and pictures. Not the least of which is the Day of Atonement in which the priest entered and sprinkled blood on these pieces of furniture representing the removal of the sins of the people and all that would place their faith and trust in Yahweh and believe in his promises. On that day of atonement, a priest would cautiously approach the altar and offer fragrant incense as a sign of the people's prayer. One of the books in the Jewish Talmud tells us that when the offering of incense was offered, the people were to liturgically respond by saying this, may the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. And here in John 17, if you will just casually glance at the subheading, we find Jesus' high priestly prayer. We find Jesus, as it were, standing at the threshold of the most holy place. His hands and his feet pressed, as it were, against the veil. And there's a pause. There's a pause as we begin to press in to the most holy place where atonement will be made for the sins of the people. And in this momentary pause, Jesus begins to pray. There's a preparation for this entrance. Look at these first five verses with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice that Jesus here in what we call the high priestly prayer at this kind of symbolic threshold of the most holy place, this threshold of the day of atonement, the ultimate day of atonement, Jesus pauses to pray and he pauses to pray not merely for himself, but for you and for me as believers. Notice the full stop in John 17, chapter, chapter 17, verse one, when it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, the Apostle John uses that same phrase several times throughout his gospel to indicate a hard stop in the narrative, that this is a transition. 
that has just happened, and now this is beginning to happen. And it couldn't be any more obvious. There's even a transition in the, the focus of Jesus' eyes, that his gaze turns from his disciples, whom he's been teaching for three chapters. The gaze turns away from them, and it says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So that there's this wonderful stop that Jesus had stopped teaching the disciples, as it were. And then he begins to shift his gaze upward to his father on behalf of the people that he has been teaching. John's characteristic transition here tells us that there's a change, there's a shift. And then we hear it in Jesus' voice in verse 1 in the latter part. He says, Father, the hour has come. In short, it's time. The time is here. The time is now. For all of John's gospel, since John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana, when he told his mother, my hour has not yet come, Jesus has been saying, the time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for this. But beginning back in chapter 12, when the Greeks came to him, and these Gentiles were seeking him, Jesus immediately shifted away from my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, and he begins to say, from that point on, the hour has come, or the hour is coming, and now is. The time has come. Time has come for what? What is it time for, Jesus? What are we talking about? It's time to do what you have sent me to do, Father. The hour has come. And then what does Jesus ask of the Father? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus asks for God the Father to glorify him. That he would receive glory from God. Can you imagine this on the lips of one of the priests entering into the holy place? Or the most holy place on the day of the offering of the incense? Or let alone the day of the atonement? Inside the Holy of Holies, some human sinful priest like Aaron, who had to offer a sacrifice for himself first, coming into the most holy place before the righteous holy God, and lifting up his eyes to God, and demanding that he be glorified? There's a reason, tradition says, that these people went into the holy place with a rope tied around their ankle. That if there was just the smallest impurity that had not been dealt with on behalf of the high priest, they would drop dead on the spot and would need to be pulled out by this rope, overcome by the holy wrath and indignation of God. Think about Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire before the Lord, who thought that they could probably think of a better way to worship God, and they were consumed with the very fire they tried to offer Think about Uzzah, who as the Ark of the Covenant approached Jerusalem and it began to teeter on the cart on which it was carried. It began to fall down. Uzzah, with every good intention, reached out his hand to grab the Ark and to hold it steady and was immediately struck dead by the anger of the Lord. And couldn't you imagine one entering into this place and saying, God, give me your glory. What kind of blasphemy would that be? What kind of wrath would God unleash on them and he had unleashed it for far less in Isaiah chapter 41 the Lord declares I will not share my glory with another in Exodus chapter 20 the first commandment is you will have no other gods before me our God is a jealous God and he will not share one ounce of his glory with anything else nothing 
will rob God of his glory. Yet Jesus has the audacity to stand before God in this place and say, glorify me. And that is only possible because Jesus himself is God in human flesh. Anything less than that would have resulted in his immediate torturous death. But Jesus, because he asks for the glory of God, reveals himself to be God. That's interesting. Jesus asks for the glory of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that when the word who was Jesus became flesh, we beheld his glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. So Jesus then is able to ask for the glory of the Father because he is precisely the image of the glory of the Father. And that when we see him and we hear him, we see the glory of God and we hear the glory of God and we witness the glory of God. So then Jesus, unlike any other man that ever walked the earth because he's God in human flesh, comes to tabernacle with us as God's glory to reveal God's glory and has the unique right to demand from God his Father that he be glorified. And of course then Jesus says, glorify me that I may glorify you. In case you don't know what's about to happen, Jesus is about to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He's about to suffer an agonizing couple of hours of torture and death. And he pauses and says that in this, Father, you receive glory even as you glorify me. In his sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross, we see the glory of God. In fact, we could say that's the pinnacle of the glory of God. Jesus bears the cross for our sins as he is lifted up for all to see. And he is laid cold in a tomb to rise again on the third day and ascend to the Father, exalted at his right hand and sends the Spirit. This is the picture of the glory of God. We need no further picture. We need no further description. We need no further experience with some tangible manifestation of the Spirit than to look at the gospel and see the glory of God in the person and work and the finalized atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we see the glory of the Trinity. What did God the Father say as Jesus came out of the waters of baptism? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In fact, he said that in John chapter 12 for everyone to hear. He said it on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What's the father doing? Look at my son. Look at my son. Look at my son. Listen to him. See him. Adore him. Worship him. And what does the son do to the father? He says, look at my father. I am the way to him. I am the truth about him. I am the life that is in him. I have come to reveal him. What does the Spirit say? Look in John 16 and verse 14. When the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. That's Jesus talking. The Spirit says, look at Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father says, look at the Son. The Son says, I will bring you to the Father. And the Spirit points to the Son and says, listen to him. Obey him. 
So we see in this inner working of the Trinity, this glory and this fellowship and this communion, as each one says, look at the Son, look at the Father, believe in the Son. In verse 2, Jesus outlines his priestly role and authority. He says, since you have given him, speaking of himself, since you've given your Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. In the Old Testament, these priests that served did not just get to be priests. They had to be born into a certain tribe, the tribe of Levi. They had to be chosen and selected and ordained into this ministry, called by their community and by the Lord into this ministry, anointed and separated, sanctified for this ministry, commissioned for this ministry in order for them to have the authority to be able to carry out the task of the priesthood. And the same is true of Jesus. Jesus, whose name Christ is not his last name, but his title as the anointed one, the chosen one, that Jesus has been called and commissioned before time began, not to be some earthly priest, but to be the great high priest of God. And he's been anointed. We've seen it uh, metaphorically at his baptism. We've seen the Holy Spirit descend on him. We saw Mary anoint him. All of these are little pictures of his being set aside and called and anointed into this task that God has given him. And what is the task? What did the priest go into the temple to do? Did the priest go into the temple to offer prayers for the entire world? Regardless of how they viewed Yahweh, regardless of how they treated the law, by no means the priest goes into the temple to offer prayers on behalf of believing Israel, what we call true Israel, those who the remnant of which believed in the promises of Yahweh and trusted him and followed him and obeyed him. The priest went into the temple for them. The priest made atonement for them. There may have been lots of bystanders. There may have been lots of hearers. Some of them may have even recited the liturgy with the priest. May, the God, enter, may God enter the holy place and graciously accept our offering. You know, amen, amen, amen. But, the, but if there was no faith in the promises of God, then the benefits of that promise were not applied to them. It wasn't for them. So Jesus says, I have authority. You've called me, you've commissioned me, you've anointed me for this task. Really, over all flesh. But specifically... To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Let's rehearse this just for a minute, if you don't mind. Go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 38. We see that Jesus, like these Old Testament priests, did not come to do his own work to do his own thing, to operate by his own authority, but he was given a mission by God which he would now obey. John six thirty eight, I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We don't have to wonder about it. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 44. In that case, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look now to John chapter 10. John 10, verse 27. Jesus, uh, metaphorically speaking of himself as the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life and they, never, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. The sheep of the Lord Jesus. Those for whom he is now praying, those for whom he will soon atone, were chosen and placed in his hands before the creation of the universe so that they belonged to the Son as a gift from the Father in the covenant of redemption from before time itself. There is no chance, there is no possibility, there is no potentiality, there is only security and certainty and confidence and assurance that those who belong to Jesus were granted to him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And they are the very same for which Jesus now comes to pray and to atone. And he will have what he died for. Notice the surety in Jesus' voice in the later part of verse 2. I came for them and I will give them eternal life. It matches that wonderful certainty that we read about in John 10 and John 6 that I will have all that the Father gives me. I will lose none of them because God has given them to me. He's greater than all. No one can snatch them out, not even themselves. What promise is it to you today? What confidence is yours today? What assurance is ours today as believers in Jesus Christ that we belonged to Christ from before the foundation of the world because we were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world? What peace is there in knowing that when Jesus prayed this prayer right here, he was not offering some generic prayer for the whole world. He was not offering some potential prayer for everyone that could or would believe, but he was offering a prayer for you and for me before the presence of a holy God with boldness and clarity in the glorious presence of God saying, God, I am praying for them because I came to give eternal life to them through the death that I die for them and through the life that I will soon retake for myself for them. There's no ifs. There's no ands. There's no buts. Jesus will have his people. He died for them and he will raise them up. What is eternal life? 
is it heaven? Streets of gold and the jasper walls and pearly gates and reunion with our lost, our passed away family members. What is the joy of eternal life? In verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that true, eternal, glorious life is not something that we simply await at a later day. But it's something that we experience right here and right now as we come to a knowledge of God through his son Jesus Heaven will come one day in its fullness. I believe there will be streets of gold and walls of jasper and pearly gates and a wonderful reunion with our loved ones. And I believe all those wonderful promises in the Bible are literal and true and will happen. But it's not something that we just look down the road and hope for. It's something that we have right now through the knowledge of the one true God, through the knowledge of his son. Just like ancient Israel participated in the signs of the the offering of the incense and the day of atonement. They were drawing near to the one true God through the active intercessory ministry of the priest. We are granted access to the one true God by the intercessory work and mediation of the great high priest, namely Jesus Christ. So eternal life is heaven, yes. It's paradise, heaven, yes. Is it a reunion with loved ones? Absolutely. But ultimately, the very knowledge of God himself is eternal life, and it's only granted through faith in Jesus Christ. It's promised to us now. It's given to us now. That's why Jesus says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, not only when they die, but right now through faith in me because I'm in the presence of my Father. Now, when Jesus comes, that life will be ultimately realized and revealed for the ages to come. But we have it right now through the knowledge of the one true God in the face of Jesus Christ. Also notice the exclusivity of this message. Jesus says, this is eternal life. This and this alone is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. There is no other way. There is no other God. And there certainly is no other way to God. It reminds us again of what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we see it repeated multiple times in just this one short phrase. First of all, he says there's only one true living God. Hearkening back to Old Testament strict monotheism. Behold Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Second, that we only know the one true God through Jesus Christ. And third, this is only possible because Jesus has been sent by the one true God as the one true way to the one true God. And I can't imagine the anger that God has when we try to lump Jesus in with everything else. The audacity to say that Jesus among many is a path to heaven. Or that Jesus among many others is a way to God. A gospel, a good news, 
a source of faith that's good for you, it's not for me. It's good that you believe that, not for me. I can't imagine the anger of God who is the only true living God who sent Jesus Christ to be the only true living way to him for us to say, yes, but there are multiple ways. What kind of blasphemy is that in the face of God that we should reject the way he has sent us and say that there are yet others? I think about the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5 who captured the ark of God and brought it in before their gods to be part of their trophy collection. These gods that they thought they served and whom they thought served them. And they put the ark there before their god Dagon. And the next day when they come back, Dagon, the idol, the worthless idol, has fallen over on his face before the ark and his head is severed and his hands are severed. Could God be any more clear? I'm not one among many. I'm not one among a few. I am one by myself, and I will not share my glory with another except that who is my glory, my only begotten son, Jesus Christ. All the other gods of the world, all the other isms, all the other philosophies are worthless, dead, empty garbage before the good news of Jesus Christ. And one day they will all bow their knees to Jesus Christ. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse four, we see why Jesus is uniquely and solely qualified. He's called and qualified to do this task because he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify me, Father, because I've accomplished the task you sent me to do. I immediately think of Matthew 5, 17. When Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I came to do every last part of it. I came to finish and accomplish every last square inch and dot and tittle of the law. I came to do it all, and I will do it all. And Jesus did do it all through his sinless life and his perfect obedience to the law of God. He accomplished everything that God sent him to do. I also immediately think of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think about us. If we're held to that same standard, the perfect obedience and fulfillment of the law, we could never stand before God and say, I accomplished it. I did everything you told me to do. We could never stand before him and do that because we've all sinned and we've all fallen so short of that standard of holiness and righteousness. But Jesus did not fall short in every single aspect of motive and thought and attitude and action, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and never fell into temptation, never fell to sin. He was in every way tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And so he never fell short. And he is the embodiment of God's glories and God's perfections. So that makes him uniquely qualified to stand before God as the mediator, having accomplished it all, having fulfilled it all. And I think about Philippians chapter two, where we started with the, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Well, where did it start? Well, because he was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Not just in his perfect sinless life and ministry, but in the atonement itself, Jesus shows perfect obedience to the Father 
And so is it any wonder then that in John's gospel when Jesus dies and offers his last breath, he says, it is finished. It is accomplished. Not, not just a passive declaration that he's dying. This is the end of my life. It's done. This is a declaration of completion. The wording of which was something you would say when a project was completed. Not simply the passive dying of someone, but that something you were given to do was accomplished. It was done. And on the cross when Jesus said that, he was revealing the fullness of what he came to do with his life and his death. And that is to fulfill the law of God, to fulfill the law of his father, and to perfectly obey him in love to the very end. Something we could never do which makes Jesus uniquely qualified in this moment to stand before God in this way on our behalf, demanding that he be glorified so that he can then glorify the Father. The atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross is the ultimate picture of Jesus' obedience and his glory as the Son of the Father. So that when we look to the cross, when Paul says that we proclaim Christ and him crucified, we are proclaiming the universe's ultimate, eternal message. The Son of God, who became a man and died for us. I want to reiterate that this death on the cross is not a potential salvation. It is not a possible salvation. It is not even ultimately a probable salvation. But Jesus' death on the cross effects salvation for those who belong to him. That's why we can sing, Jesus saves. I hope you really believe he does and he can. Not just that he might. Not just that there's the remote possibility that Jesus saves. The potential of Jesus as Savior. But that Jesus is a Savior. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all. That he took the payment of the sins of his people. And if there's any more left to be paid, he didn't actually pay it all. But Jesus paid it all. It's why we sing, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Faltering believer this morning, Jesus died for you. Doubting believer Jesus died for you. Suffering believer, Jesus died for you. Backslidden believer, Jesus died for you. Whatever your trouble, whatever your sorrow, whatever your sin, whatever your shame, Jesus died for you. You can rest in this confidence because it's not about you. It never was. 
It's bigger than you. It always was. You didn't give yourself to Christ. God did. You didn't give yourself to God. Christ did. That's assurance. That's confidence. And that's security. Verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, that what Jesus is asking for in this glorification is not something foreign to him. It's not something new to him. What he's asking for is intrinsically part of him. It's inherent to his nature as the God-man. And he makes that perfectly clear. Glorify me in your own presence. Not bring me there for the first time. Not put me there for the first time, but in your presence with your glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And there's no doubt in my mind that what that means is that Jesus endured the agony of the garden, the agony of his arrest, the agony of the cross. He endured those things with one thing and one thing only on his mind. That wonderful communion and fellowship and exaltation and glory that he would soon experience once again at the right hand of God. Where Psalm 16 tells us our pleasures forevermore. That's great news for Jesus. Good news for Jesus. He'll be at the right hand of the Father, exalted, ascended, and glorified and all that good stuff. But it's even better news for you. As we talked about this week at summer camp, Colossians chapter 3 says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that we should put our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So that because Christ has now experienced the glorification at the right hand of the Father, we who are in him have experienced that reality in our life. And we will realize it in full when he comes and when we see him. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It's a good thing that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I don't die, if I don't ascend, if I don't leave, if I don't go to the presence of my Father, I can't ask him to send the Spirit. And if I don't ask him to send the Spirit, you will not have the fullness of salvation. So Jesus says, it's better that I go away. To send this down payment of your salvation into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, we're just going to turn through a few chapters here, reading a few verses at a time. Hebrews chapter 5, look at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Talking about earthly high priests at the time of Moses in the temple and the tabernacle. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. And rehearsing everything we've heard about these Old Testament priests. They must be called, they must be appointed, they must be given this authority by someone, and they must offer sacrifices for themselves first. Now look over in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. But Jesus is the grantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, 50 a day, because they were prevented from death, by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Look at chapter nine, verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly, verse six, into their first section performing their ritual duties But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood with which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And now look at chapter 7. We already looked at chapter 7, sorry. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Believer, what joy is it to you today that Jesus stands as your great high priest before the throne of God? that he takes with him there your trials, your pain, your suffering, the attacks of the enemy, your sin, your shame, your suffering, and that he is even now always interceding for you. Not with goats and bulls, but with his own precious life and blood. That's why Wesley writes in his hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. 
Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood was shed for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They They pour effectual prayers, they strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Look look with me back at John chapter 17 as we close. Unbeliever today, you've not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus. What standing do you think you have before God? Whatever standing you think you have before God today is nothing You're like Adam and Eve trying to cover your nakedness and your shame with fig leaves that you've sewn together yourself. You're like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 28 where the people tried to cover themselves with blankets that are too short and lay on beds that are too narrow. You've got nothing to offer God. Whatever ism and philosophy you think you found, it won't bring you to God. It can't bring you to God because there's only one true God and there's only Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And unless you realize that and believe that and embrace that, you do not and cannot have eternal life. But the invitation is open. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believers, How do you know that you're in Jesus' prayers? How do you know that you're in his intercession? How do you know that he loves you and cares for you? Because here in the hour before his death, he prays for you. You say, well, how do I know he's praying for me? He's just praying for his disciples. Look at verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Okay, well, that's great. You're praying for the disciples still. That's all I believe. And look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but for all who will believe in me through their word. In the hour before his death, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for me. And there's divine confidence in the fact that if he prayed for you then, he's praying for you now. So the invitation this morning is very simple. Unbelievers, come to the great high priest who is able alone to bring you before the presence of God. And believers, 
with whatever you're suffering with, whatever you're dealing with, whatever sin there is, whatever unbelief, whatever doubt, know that Jesus died for you and that he is now interceding for you and rest in that peace and that assurance and that confidence. As Jesus continues through this prayer, we'll see him lift up his heart for his disciples and for us just before he offers up his body on the tree for us. And so as we sing today, reflect in the glorious, glorious thought that truly before Jesus was on the cross, we were on his mind. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the divine gift of your son, Jesus, who lives for us and who intercedes for us. Thank you for the blood of the eternal covenant that cleanses us, that sets us free from sin and separates us to worship you forever. For unbelievers here today, Lord, reach out by your Holy Spirit and draw them to faith and repentance in Jesus that they might come to know you, which is the only source of eternal life. And for believers today, comfort and assure us of our standing with you, not because of our works and not because of our goodness, but because of the merits and the work of your son, Jesus. With confidence, we draw near to you because of him. And it's in his name we pray.